This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So we're taking a couple of months to uh, study through Philippians together, and sort of our lens for understanding uh, the whole book is the three-sentence summary. Uh, Do nothing gain everything, give anything. If you're new to the church, if you're trying to figure this out, if it's been a while since you were uh, at the church, you just need to remember that this is the core teaching of Scripture. This is the summary of what the Scriptures teach about the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace. You do nothing to earn it. In saving us, Christ gives us everything worth having in this life and the next, but it's according to his timing. And in grateful and faithful response, we increasingly give anything that will advance the kingdom of Jesus. So let's begin uh, this morning this way. How do we do with trials and setbacks, losses, hardship, and pain? How do we respond when things don't go our way, when things don't go according to plan? What happens in our hearts when nature or neighbor attacks? Cancer, storm, gossip, malice. Not what facade or what exterior do we project, but what do we act, how, how do we actually respond? How do we actually internally react? This morning, our text is a personal note from the Apostle Paul uh, to the Philippians, and he is telling them how he is doing, how he's responding, how he's holding up in the midst of an extensive and extended trial. For over a decade, uh, the Christians at Philippi had supported Paul in his ministry endeavors, okay? Uh, Paul had been essentially throughout the entire uh, known world, almost, and and they had given him uh, their prayers, they'd given him their encouragement, they'd given him their money. And at this point in Paul's ministry, the Philippians know that he is imprisoned in Rome and he is awaiting a capital trial before Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And the concerned Philippians have sent to Paul a man named Epaphroditus and they have sent more support, more money, more prayers, but they've also asked Paul to give them a report of how he's doing in the midst of what's going on around him. And Paul tells the Philippians in our text four things. He says that he's rejoicing in this trial, what he's rejoicing in, why he's rejoicing in it, and how we can increasingly rejoice in trials too. So that he's rejoicing, what he's rejoicing in, why he's rejoicing in it, and how we can increasingly rejoice in trials too. Okay, so first, uh, Paul tells his dear friends in Philippi that He is rejoicing in this trial, and of course I mean this trial two ways. The the New Testament speaks of hardship and pain and loss as a trial. But at the same time, Paul is actually on trial in Rome. That would certainly categorize as a biblical trial. And so in classic Paul-like style, he severely understates uh, what he's going through. Look in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, literally in the Greek language it says, the things of me. In verses 13 and 14, Paul will allude to his reality as being imprisonment. Literally, he says that he has chains, he has bonds, he has fetters. 
So at the moment of writing, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Uh, he, he has some flexibility on where he lives. Uh, he is able to receive guests, but he must stay indoors 24 hours a day. And at all times, there is an imperial guard, an elite imperial guard chained to him, watching his every move suspiciously. But if you look in the book of Acts, starting around chapter 20 or 21, you'll actually see everything that happened to Paul leading up to this imprisonment in this house in Rome. All of these following could be included in what he says is the things that happened to me. A false accusation against him in Jerusalem by people he was trying to help. Being nearly lynched by a mob. Being passed around unjustly as a prisoner by various Jewish and Roman authorities being sent to Rome to stand trial for a supposed capital crime, enduring a horrific storm at sea while traveling to Rome. It was a sea in the book of Acts that that it says neither sun nor star appeared for many days. That's a significant storm. Being bit by a poisonous viper, being rejected by the Jews in Rome, being disliked, hated, and afflicted by some jealous Christians in Rome, being watched over day and night by an elite Roman imperial guard. He could not eat in private, He could not talk to friends in private. He could not sleep in private. He could not bathe in private. He could not relieve himself in private. He could not leave the house. Every four hours, a new guard would take the chain from the previous guard. But Paul, while they were able to to take places of one another, had to remain chained for at least three years. Undoubtedly, by now, his ankles and his wrists were past the point of being sore, past the point of being bruised, uh, past the point of being tender to the touch. They were just calloused and raw. He's like, oh yeah, those things. About those things. In regard to what has happened to me, I, verse 18, rejoice in that. Yes, I will rejoice. Most simply, to rejoice is to be glad. To rejoice is to be happy of heart. He's telling his friends, I know you've heard an awful lot about what has happened to me, but you have to know, I'm not primarily depressed. I'm not mad. I'm not discouraged. I'm not frustrated. I'm not giving up. I'm not selling out. I'm not stoic, and I'm not in denial. I'm glad in the heart. So that he's rejoicing in trial. Next, what is he rejoicing in? What are the reasons for his rejoicing? Paul gives an overarching reason, and he fleshes it out with four examples. Look back in verse 12. In summary fashion, Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance or progress or further or propel the gospel. Paul Paul doesn't say that the good news of Jesus, the good news of his kingdom, that it's moving forward uh, in spite of his trials, but he says it's moving forward because of and through his trials. Look at it again. He says, what has happened has really served to advance the gospel. And so then in verses 13 through 20, if you just keep your eyes there, I'm going to walk us through 13 through 20. He's going to give four ways in which the gospel is advanced because he's in chains. So verse 13, Paul tells us of a new captive audience. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my chains are for Christ. So Paul doesn't focus on his imprisonment. He doesn't focus on his captivity. He doesn't focus on his immobility. Instead, he glories in the reality that that every four hours, a new high-ranking guard was his prisoner. 
his captive, chained to him, unable to move away from his efforts to preach Christ. I'm thinking of that really annoying person on the plane who wants to talk to you on the international flight and, and this fasten seatbelt signs on, and you're like, you can't get away from them. Paul's like, this would have never happened. I could have never gotten here to preach the gospel to these guys had I not been chained. Second, verse 14, through Paul's imprisonment, the number of gospel preachers is multiplying. Listen to verse 14. This is a more literal translation. And or also, this, he's like, here's another advancement of the gospel. Most of the brothers and sisters, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. But Paul is saying, because I'm in prison, the brothers and the sisters are trusting in the Lord more and speaking more often. And the question is why? So my 10-year-old Maddie is, uh, is playing basketball right now. So I think it's the first time for her to play organized basketball. And, and she's a good player, uh, maybe not a great player, not, not a great player yet, but she's good. And in the first couple of games, uh, her contribution to her team, I would, I would categorize it as decent. Uh, she didn't hurt the team. We'll just say it that way. <laughs> Some of the girls do, in fact, hurt the team. We're going to kick them off next year. Don't worry. Um, I'm totally joking. But in the last two games, I would say her contribution, if you just look at the statistics and you look at the game tape, which we have, um, <laughs> her, I'm joking. Her contribution, I've, I've guessed, I'm guessing it's 5.5 times greater than before. So five and a half times greater, that's just a rough guess. And, um, and the reason uh, for her improvement is this. There's a young girl on her team that is great. She's extraordinary. And the other teams, after the first two games, have figured out that they have to make priority number one, shutting down this amazing player. And this has forced Maddie and, and another girl on their team to elevate their game. The star has been neutralized. This is what Paul's saying. He's like, look, the apostle can't be there to explain everything to everybody. The apostle can't come over and help your neighbor or your sister understand the word of God. The apostle's not there every Sunday to preach. The, the, the people of the church are going to have to depend on God like they never have before. And in depending upon God, they're going to experience him like they never have before. And they're going to step out in mission like they never would have if Paul were free to go wherever he wants. He says, most of the brothers and sisters are trusting and speaking more because of my chains. And in that, I rejoice. Third, in verses 15 to 17, Paul tells the Philippians that the gospel is even advancing through enemies who are preaching Christ in order to hurt Paul. Now, there's a lot about this that we cannot say with 100% certainty uh, what is going on. We have to just trust that those in Philippi uh, understood the context and they knew better uh, how to apply this. But there are some things we can say with certainty. That first, although these preachers were motivated by envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, they were actually preaching the gospel faithfully. If you look to verse 17, Paul says that they are proclaiming Christ. In chapter 3 of this same book, we're going to get to a text where Paul addresses uh, those who preach a different gospel other than Jesus. Uh, they're Judaizers. They're, they're Jesus plus preachers. They essentially said you can have Jesus and he's a good start, but in addition to Jesus, you have to do something to be saved, namely circumcision or something else according to the Jewish 
law. And, and when Paul speaks of them, he doesn't say they proclaim Christ. This is what he calls them. Chapter 3, verse 2. It's the same thing he calls the Jesus plus preachers, the do something to gain everything preachers in Galatia. Dogs. It's technical. Dogs. Evildoers. So first, although driven by horrible motive, these preachers are actually preaching the gospel. And second, we don't know exactly how they're hoping to afflict Paul in his imprisonment, but they actually cause him to be glad, to dance, to smile, to enjoy life. Some, some commentators, if you look at verse 17, uh, they believe um, that these ill-motivated preachers are trying to stir up a frenzy in the city that the Roman officials would blame Paul for and therefore tighten his chains is what it literally says in the Greek language. And some commentators think that the self, and I, this is what I think because when I'm living in sin, I tend to do this. Some, some of them think that these self-centered preachers are assuming that Paul was just like them, them that, that he would be jealous, that he would be envious, that their success would rub him the wrong way and, and, and that this would just drive him nuts in prison. Either way, Paul says they're preaching the gospel more than they would have if I was not in prison. And for that, well, he says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in false motive or pure, Christ is proclaimed. Finally, fourthly, Paul is rejoicing in this trial because he knows that the gospel will advance in him and in his life because of the trial. Look at verse 19. He says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Forty-four times this word comes up in the New Testament. Only here do they translate it deliverance. Everywhere else it's salvation. Paul is saying this imprisonment will turn out for my salvation. And it's tempting to think, well, what he's actually saying is that this will end in deliverance for him, that, that Caesar will exonerate him and release him, but that's not what he says. He says this, being in prison, this will bear the result of salvation in my life. And look at the end of verse 20. Whether by life or by death, he's not talking about getting out of prison. Paul is saying that he is rejoicing in this trial because whether he lives or dies, the saving work of God will move forward through the trial. Remember, in the New Testament, the Bible talks about God saving us and our salvation in past, present, and future ways. When talking about our salvation in the past, Paul talks about us being free from the penalty of sin that we're forgiven. When talking about our salvation in the present, Paul talks about our salvation from the power of sin, that God is releasing us from slavery and making us more free and more beautiful. When Paul writes about our salvation in the future, he's talking about that glorious day when either we die or Jesus returns and we're with him away from the presence of evil and sin forever. And if you just kind of look at what Paul is saying, Paul is saying whether I live or whether I die, as I look at the end of this trial, he's like, God's either going to make me more beautiful through this suffering or God will make me perfect with Jesus. Either way, the gospel is advancing, not in spite of this trial, but because of this trial. 
So one of the consistent teachings of the Bible is that God most rapidly grows genuine Christians through suffering, through trials, through hardship, through loss, and through pain. And the Bible says we can bring it upon ourselves through discipline, or God will bring it on us because he loves us and he disciplines us. But either way, that's how we grow most rapidly. Peter says that trials refine us. James says we become wise with the heavenly wisdom. Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So last thought before we move on. Paul says in verse 20, he says, it's my expectation and my hope to honor Christ, to magnify Christ, So the word hope in the New Testament is not like the English word for hope. Our word has this uncertainty to it. The New Testament word for hope is better translated a certain hope. Something will happen in the future. The question is this, when will it happen? And Paul is saying about himself in this horrific trial, he's saying about himself what he said about the Philippians in verse 6. He who began a good work in him will bring it to completion. And then Paul, remember verses 9 through 11, he did not command the Philippians to persevere. He prayed that they would persevere. So if you look back in verse 19, he says, I know that through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my salvation. So this is what Paul is rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. More people are proclaiming Christ, more people are hearing Christ, more, there, there's going to be more Christ or more character in him. Uh, but then the next question is, why? Why? Why is Paul rejoicing in the advancement of the gospel? It seems pretty clear, but why? Not, not simply Paul says, this is something I can handle. He doesn't say, this is something I can live through. He doesn't say, this is something that I have to put up with. He says, this is something I rejoice and revel in. And then in four of the most, uh, four or five of the most famous verses in the book, verses 21 through 26, Paul tells us why. He gives us his definition for life, and he shares with us his deepest desire. So look at verse 21. Paul rejoices in this trial because of how he has defined his life. He rejoices because of why he exists on the earth. Verse 21, for, so uh, since or because. He says, I'm rejoicing whether by life or by death because to me to live, so to me to live on earth is Christ and to die is gain. Paul tells us in verse 22 what he means by to me to live is Christ. Keep reading. He says, if I am to live, so it's connecting it back to live. If I am to live in the flesh, that means that equals fruitful labor for me. If I am to stay alive, if Caesar releases me, then to live is Christ. God has kept me alive in order to promote and live for and give all that I have in bearing fruit for his kingdom. And he rejoices in this, Jesus being loved and Jesus being famous. It's like, in that, I rejoice. But further, how can Paul rejoice at the prospect, the real prospect of dying, literally of being executed? 
His trial could appear on the docket any minute, and within minutes, he could be dead. There's no reason to think that this trial would take very long at all. It won't be drawn out. It won't be covered by multiple uh, cable channels. Uh, it's just the kind of trial where when Caesar's ready to hear it, he hears it, and whatever his inclination is, is Paul's destiny. He is looking at death in the face, and he's not anxious. He's not angry. He's not shut down. He's rejoicing at the prospect of dying. To die is gain. Keep reading in verse 22. Yet which I shall choose. He's talking about life or death, the things that paralyze us. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul was like, I know the choice isn't mine, but if you force me to choose, I don't know what I would choose. Keep going in verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between the two. Uh, but he says, don't be confused. I, it's, not that I, it's not that I desire them both equally. He, he's going to tell us why he's hard-pressed. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better than being alive. He says, I deeply want to die and see Jesus. But, verse 24, to remain in the flesh, this is why he's hard-pressed, this is why it's a hard decision, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He says, on the one hand, I desire to be with Jesus. I desire to be in what Jesus called paradise when he was on the cross. But on the other hand, the church in Philippi needs me so that they, verse 25, can progress and enjoy the faith. So let's look a little deeper. This is an amazing phrase. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, verse 23. Okay? This is the phrase uh, that Paul gives to explain why he can actually rejoice at the prospect of dying any moment. This is the phrase he gives. Uh, he, he says if he dies, it is gain. Desire is the word that we study all the time around here. It comes up at least once a year. It's used by multiple New Testament authors. It's the word epithumia. Epi is over, before, ahead. Thumia is desire. So epithumia is this, my overarching desire, my chief desire, my primary desire, my epi, like epic, my epi desire is to be with Jesus. And so the New Testament will use this word positively and negatively. The New Testament will use this word of an evil desire um, when we desire too much a lesser thing. So idolatry is giving a God-sized affection for a created thing. And that desire is evil in the Bible. But when used of Jesus and his kingdom and his ways, this word is incredibly positive, like verse 23. Paul says that his chief desire in life, his controlling desire, the desire that all other desires are subject to, the desire that every other desire bows down to is this. This is his chief desire in life, departing and being with Jesus. That will change everything. So depart is a word that means to unloose. And it was used primarily in two fields. Listen to this. Listen to what the, the picture Paul is painting. First, it was used in camping, when campers would unloose a tent stake and head towards home. The whole process would be called this depart. Second, it was used in sailing, to unloose from a dock or an anchor and sailing home. The whole process would be called this unloose, to, to depart. 
Paul is saying this life is like a tent. It's like traveling without any permanent rest. He says, I want to go home. He's like, this life is like sailing the high seas and being in a foreign port all the time, and I desperately want to depart, and I want to sail home. This is my deepest desire. Paul is saying, this life is not home. When Christians die, they go home. This is the only thing that will truly satisfy. This is paradise. This is home. This is to be with Jesus away from sin and pain and death. This is my deepest desire. And even a chained execution would be humiliating and painful and scary, but the desire to be comfortable and the desire to be in control is nothing compared to my epi-desire of being with Jesus in heaven. To die is gain. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. There are seven, seven books. My daughter Maddie's about to the age of reading them. And in the last battle, which is the last book towards the end, when the victory has been won and Aslan is forever the champion, he turns and he looks and he says to Lucy, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. Remember, they're drawn into Narnia and then they have to go back to what they thought was home. She says, we don't want to go there. You sent us back to our own world so often. And Aslan says, the Christ figure in uh, the Chronicles, no fear of that. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan. Your father and mother, all of you, are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. But Aslan says, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And Paul says, the nightmare is over. When we die, we awake to home. The home we're created for. The home that our deepest longings cry out for and cannot be satisfied in this life. So let's go back to the start. Let's apply this to us. If we're not yet rejoicing in trials, responding with joy to opposition, pain, and hardship. This text tells us that there are several reasons why that may be. First, our lack of joy may come from the fact that we don't yet understand or have never been taught that suffering builds the kingdom of Jesus, that trials really serve to advance the gospel. Second, Our lack of joy in trials may come from having a faulty life definition. Or if I could say it differently, we may not yet be defining life to live the way Paul defined it. If we don't think advancing the kingdom is the reason to live, if we don't think that the reason we're alive is to bear fruit in the kingdom of God, even, um, even if we know that suffering is, uh, is the most powerful vehicle to producing fruit and glorifying himself, even if we know that suffering will advance his kingdom, we frankly won't give a, um, we won't care that our suffering is advancing the kingdom because our life is not coming true. If our slogan is, to me, to live is getting into a particular school, 
then being declined by that school can't possibly be something to rejoice in. If our life slogan is, to me, to live is to be married and have children, then being single or infertile, by definition, can't possibly be a joy-inducing event. If our life slogan is, to me, to live is to be rich, then radical generosity or an economic downturn can't possibly be a good and amazing gift from God. Third reason we might not yet be responding with joy. Our lack of joy, our lack of glad response may be because we have the wrong epi desire. If our supreme desire is not having more of Jesus and being with him, then hardship will not give us more of what we want, but will take away what we ultimately want. Hardship will cause the potential of getting what we ultimately want to decrease. How can you rejoice in that? If we ultimately desire success, then failure, even if it advances the kingdom, cannot be enjoyed. If we ultimately desire control, then being obviously out of control can't possibly be good, regardless of who all Jesus can help in the process. If we ultimately desire comfort, then being uncomfortable and being in pain can't possibly be good, and it can never provide gladness to our heart. I mean, think about it. This is, my, this is what I think of as a definition for rejoicing. It is getting your hands around what you most want. I mean, think about Newt Gingrich and his buddies in South Carolina. Think about them compared to Romney. Rejoicing, not rejoicing. Got my hands around what I wanted. Think about um, the Patriots getting their hands around Tebow. Rejoicing. They got what they wanted. If joy at the most basic level is the heart's response to getting what it wants, if joy at the most basic level is the heart's response to getting what it wants, then idolatry will always lead us to despair and distress and anxiety and sadness and anger. Now, to wrap up the point, to wrap up this section of the passage, look down to verse 25. You're going to see Paul, the ultimate verbal processor. All right, He's going to sort of place his bet as to how he thinks this is all going to turn out. He says, on the one hand, I desire to die, but on the other hand, you need me to be alive. And he says, convinced of this, and we saw this word last week, it means having thought this through, being induced to believe through words, after processing this. So literally, in verses 21 through 24, Paul processed the dilemma ahead of him. It's not like he's using a MacBook Air or he's using a word processor. He can cut and paste and clean this thing up. He's on parchment and ink. He's like, okay, having thought this through, having processed it, he's like, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress or advancement and joy in the faith. And this is quite unbelievable if you stop and think about it. If you think through our do nothing, gain everything, give anything, we think that dying for the gospel falls under giving anything. But Paul actually says that dying is part of gaining everything. Let your mind think about that for a second. It will take you three days to get your mind around what I just said. To die is gain. 
We think dying for the gospel is giving anything. And Paul says dying for the gospel is gaining everything. And then he actually says, I'm willing to stay alive in the flesh for your benefit, which for him falls under give anything. No wonder. I mean, his, his way, oh, I can't even start to think about it. He's so different from me. No wonder he says what he says about living and dying. At any rate. So, here's a theological term for you. That's whack. It's hard to hear. It's hard to understand. It's hard to believe. But listen, Paul is at the end of his life. He's at the most mature point he's, uh, he's going to be. And he sees it this way. And when I study it and when I try and get my mind around it and when I think about it, there's a hopefulness to it. There's a winsomeness to it. There's an attractiveness to it that intrigues me, that calls to me, and it makes me want to have this kind of hope. And so we'll conclude, how can we increasingly rejoice in trials too? Or asked differently, if rejoicing in trials comes from defining life as the opportunity to bear fruit for Jesus' kingdom, how can we increasingly want to define life that way? Or if rejoicing in trials and seeing death as gain comes from your deepest desire to being with Jesus, how can we increasingly desire being with him? The answer is simply this. The more and more we hear the gospel and proclaim the gospel, the more and more the core definition of life will change for us. The more and more we hear Christ and proclaim Christ, the more and more we'll want, want him and, and we'll enjoy looking forward to living with him forever. Ever. Look at the text. I'm going to walk you through multiple verses very quickly. Paul references making Christ known, proclaiming Christ, speaking the word of Christ, preaching Christ, magnifying Christ. He says the gospel advances as Christ is proclaimed, as he's preached, as he's spoken of, as he's displayed, as he's magnified. Verse 13, Christ has become known. 14, the brothers and the sisters are speaking the word without fear. Verses 15 to 17, many from love and some from envy are proclaiming Christ. Verse 18, only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. Verse 20, Christ will be honored or enlarged or magnified in my body. Verse 26, having ample cause to glory in Christ. Essentially and redundantly, we grow into this give anything by hearing over and over and over about how Christ has, through his life and through his death, made the gospel this. You do nothing and you gain everything. So as Paul is moving towards his trial, the only way he can truly be joyful and remain joyful is to keep in his mind's eye how Jesus approached his trial for Paul. I'll say, I'll say, it, I'll say it again. For, for Paul to move towards his trial in a way that makes a big deal about Jesus, he has to first and foremost keep in his eye how Jesus moved towards his trial in a way that made a big deal of Paul. I've been thinking about this since last Thursday in CBR, City Bible Reading, where we read through the scriptures together. As early as the ninth chapter of a 24-chapter book, Luke, as early as that, Jesus was rejected by Samaritans because his jaw and his face was set towards Jerusalem, and he with resolute strength was going there so that he might die. And I began to realize, as early as the ninth chapter, Jesus is on his way to his trial and his death for us. And it launched me down this path of considering all that Jesus did in order to be arrested, in order to go to trial, in order to be unjustly condemned, in order to be executed, in order to die for us. 
and for our sin in order that we might go to him and be with him forever in paradise. Not only did Jesus set his jaw towards Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught in the temple every day so that his enemy could capture him. If Jesus had stayed in Samaria, if he had stayed in Capernaum, if he had stayed in the wilderness to the east of Jordan, the Jews would have never bothered him. They would have never arrested him. But Jesus goes right into Dodge, enters into the temple, cleanses it, uh, um, condemns it, expels the leaders of it. And then he says, when they arrested him in the garden, he said, I was in the temple every day. Why don't you just arrest me there? Before they arrest him in the garden, God the Father shows Jesus the cup of awful, holy wrath, and Jesus has to endure it. And the text tells us that in the sight of God's wrath, Jesus falls to the ground. He's so overwhelmed by it, he is sweating drops of blood. But he did not run. He stayed. And he said, your will be done. And when they did, under the cloak of darkness, come to arrest Jesus in the garden, he says, I am. And somehow his divinity was expressed and it knocked the whole entire arresting mob to the ground. And then the text tells us Jesus moved towards them and identified himself as the one that they needed to arrest. Once arrested at trial, he did not speak. He did not defend himself. He did not give Pilate any proof of his innocence so that Pilate would, in fact, unjustly, without cause, hand him over to the torturers to be beaten, to be mocked, to be stripped, to be strung up on a cross. And on the cross, he did not call down the thousands of angels who wanted to deliver him. He did not call down the warriors who wanted to slay the guilty. He was slain for the guilty, so the guilty could be with him forever in the new heaven and the new earth. This love, this gospel, this salvation, this grace, this is what Paul proclaimed to the men in chains. This is what he said the men and women were proclaiming in the city. This is what those with ill motive were proclaiming, but people were becoming well through it. This is what he looked forward to proclaiming to Caesar. This is what he wanted to proclaim to the Philippians, that they might become more sure, more overjoyed, more progressed in the gospel. He is saying, if you want to live like that in a trial, you have to first and foremost and continually See Jesus doing that for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you. We thank you that your love is so amazing and so divine that in our most sober moments, we really do want to be done with this life and come see you. We thank you that your gospel is so beautiful and rich and free that in our best moments, we look forward to you bringing us home. We thank you that your, your gospel is so beautiful and full that we do not have to earn our salvation, but that we live life looking to give you away whatever it costs us. Would you please let us see you more clearly? Would you please let us see you more fully? Would you please motivate us and compel us and drive us to righteous living because of all that you have given to us by your grace? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.